Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. As I get older, I've become passionate about finding the best ways to refresh the mind, refuel the body, and rebuild strength so that I can keep doing what I love into my 60s and 70s. If you've got similar goals to me, then I hope you'll join me each week as I bring you amazing guests from around the world, all with the goal of helping you to improve your sporting performance, regardless of whether you're a triathlete, ocean swimmer, ultra runner, or gravel racer. Talking of ultra running, this week's guest is Andy Slater. Andy is a member of my SWAT community, and he's just completed an event known as the toughest foot race on earth, the Marathon de Sable. You may have seen footage of this event on some TV channels and even harbour a desire to take part yourself. Hopefully, by the end of this conversation, you'll have heard enough to make up your mind and possibly take up the challenge. I've done this event myself a couple of times and the conversation really brought back some good memories. It's definitely a life-changing adventure. Anyway, enough of the preamble. Let's hear about Andy's desert experiences. Welcome to the show, Andy Slater. Hi, Simon. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Now, the, the listeners can't see this, but I'm, as usual, doing the call on Zoom. We've got the video on. Um, for a man who's just walked uh, several hundred kilometres across the Sahara Desert, you're looking remarkably healthy, if you don't mind me saying. And yeah. I, I'm basing that on my own <laughs> my own pictures of that time where I looked like a bit of a skeleton when we'd finished. I think it's um, having two weeks back since uh, we've completed the race and I've really enjoyed um, eating my food, eating non-freeze-dried um, fruit, eating fresh fruit and vegetables and yeah. also eating a lot of junk food as well, if I'm being honest. I've, uh, I've had a few kebabs, which, is, uh, which has been nice. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about Marathon de Sable then. I'm, I'm sure that there will be uh, quite a few listeners um, who have sort of mulled over the idea of doing that um, and maybe even a few more that have actually done it. So uh, I've, I've done the Marathon Disable twice. In fact, I, it was completely by coincidence, but you'll be able to see that I am uh, sort of giving you some kudos here by wearing my uh, MDS um, body warmer gilet that I, uh, and you've got your, you've got your uh, baseball cap as well. Um, so, we, we, we're giving a little bit of uh, a thumbs up to MDS. It's it's a fantastic experience, isn't it? And, and I I know a lot of people see it as a race, but to me, particularly when I did it the second time, it's just a life experience. Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely it. I went into the MDS not uh, not planning to race it, to to experience it, to take it all in, and to to really enjoy the moments that from the the camp life to the stages and. Um, just to, to really experience the whole event and not just think about positions, numbers, times. So, no, I completely agree with you. Did, I mean, <laughs> we'll get into this a little bit, but did you did you bother at the end of each day seeing how long it had taken you or where you actually were on the no. um, on, on the leaderboard? No, we had uh, a couple of tent mates who, for the, I think the first two days, they looked at the, the, the numbers. One, one of the guys in our tent was a, a fast runner, so he was in the top uh, 150. So oh. he was looking. So he was looking at the numbers and the details. But the rest of us were like, "No, we'll just um, we'll enjoy the experience." All right. Well, let's let's get on to talking about that whole experience and right right from the very beginning. So, what was it that first piqued your interest in doing marathon disable? So this goes way way back to actually when I was a little boy. So when you have four TV channels and 
on Channel 4, there was a program called Transworld Sport. And that, yep, was remember first, that. Yep. that was the first time that I'd seen the Marathon de Saab. And it was a load of crazy guys in the middle of the desert, self-supported, drinking some water, and you're just thinking, they're absolutely off their head. And that was the first time that I'd seen Transworld Sport and the first time I'd seen Marathon de Saab. And that was when the, the first seed was, was really sown. And then getting into endurance sports over the since 2013, getting into triathlon and then getting into the, the, the longer distance Ironman, I'd done a number of Ironmans. And it's like, right, what's next? What, what can I do that's different? I've wanted a break, a break from triathlon. And one of my friends, a, a good friend, he's a, a marathon runner. And we basically got drunk one night in 2018. And we just said, so we look at the marathon de Saab and we were like, well, yeah, let's do it. And then in 2019, when the entries opened, we just thought, right, let's let's go ahead, book it. We've got the cash, we've got the entry fee. Let's do it. Duncan initially went, well, could we do the half? This is the, the half marathon de Saab, what's he do over in Future Ventura? And I went, no, this is, this is a one and done. I'm, I'm not doing no halves. I want the full experience and I'm not going to do it again. So let's do it. And then we booked it. We booked it on the, the day of um, the entries opening and that was it. That was the, the kind of initial thoughts. And also, I think this is going back to 2014, I think it was, when we were together in Lanzarote and we we'd had that training camp together, just you and I, and we talked quite a lot throughout the, the whole week. And you'd kind of wax lyrical about the marathon de Saab, and that was another kind of nugget to sow the scene. It's just like, yeah, it's 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 got to happen at some point, and and sure enough, we um, we booked it. I think I'd done it once then, back in two thousand and one. I did it the year after my mum died to raise some money for the hospice where she passed away, and and then I did it with a group of friends in two thousand and fifteen. So that would have been the year after we talk about it. So I would imagine that we were probably thinking about doing it then and um, having to wait until the entries came out um, later on that year and probably chatting with you about it. We, we probably rode past somewhere where they had the camels walking um, out, out on Fire Mountain and we saw them and I said, they're like the camels at the back of, uh, back of the race on MDS. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, you entered... So you were interrupted by a lockdown, weren't you? So, um, yeah, how many, so how many, how many years did it delay you actually getting to do the race? So I was looking at the timelines uh, last night. So we entered through the 2020 April edition, and that was kind of all geared up, and it was all going well. All the training was going well, and we got to I think it was about February of 2020, and that's when COVID kind of started rearing its uh, ugly head. And then come March, when we kind of got put into lockdown and then we had the yeah. first cancellation, we then got through to the summer of 2020. And they said, look, we're going to put it, put the, the 2020 edition on in October. So we then had to hastily kind of get ready throughout the summer and try and get the training in, kind of think about the, the conditions and how much that would change from April to October. That then subsequently got cancelled. We then had to start our training again for 2021, April's edition. Again, that got cancelled because of um, the, the, the latest um, COVID variant. 
We then got asked if we wanted to do it in October 2021. At that point, I had trained three times, three cancellations. And also with the extreme heat that was going to be in October, Duncan and I decided to defer and to raise for 2022 April's edition. Was was there any point where you thought this one might uh, might not go ahead? Yes, <laughs> pretty much throughout the whole of the training, getting ready for this camp, that it was just stop, start, stop, start. And with the different variations of COVID that were appearing, it was just like, will we actually get out there and... Thankfully, as we got closer and closer, it then became a reality that, yes, we were going to get, actually get out to Morocco. It, it's required a lot of resilience, hasn't it? I was just thinking about this. You know, you've you've done a couple of Ironman races, and I know that a lot of people say, oh, if it got called off, I couldn't build myself up to do it again. And it, and it always makes me think, like, there are some there are lots of people out there. Let's say we divided the, the number of endurance athletes in half, and there'd be 50% who do the training anyway. They would do that sort of stuff. So it doesn't matter to them whether they've got a race or not. They just get on with it. They go running and riding every day. And there are other people who need the motivation of an event to get them motivated. But Marathon Disable is different, isn't it? You, you know, the, the training that you need to do, like for an Ironman or an Ultra, is way, way above. So you could have a general level of fitness, but you still need to build yourself up. And then, and then there's the mental aspect. And then, and then the other stuff that we're going to talk about in a little bit is the logistics because it's not simply a matter of, well, I've got my bike and I've got my wetsuit and I've got my running shoes so I can rock up. There's a whole load of kit that I've bought for two races now that I've only ever used twice. Yeah. <laughs> and the stuff uh, that I had from the first race wasn't fit to use in the second race, so I had to buy it all again. It is that challenge of um, the resilience piece of having to stop, start the training of building up a, a high volume of um, training, getting into really good fitness and for it to then be cancelled unsure if it was actually going to go ahead again for the kind of October edition. We then got confirmation to say, yes, it's going ahead. So you're then having to rebuild your fitness and restructure your training and think about your, um, your, your kind of schedule, your social life, where you're going to fit that, that training into. It then subsequently getting cancelled again. And you're just thinking, wow, if this, is this actually going to happen? Mm. Am I actually going to commit to the training for the next one? Because potentially it's going to get cancelled again. And you think with the scale of this race, you've got to commit to the training. So it's like, yeah, keep going, keep your head down. It will happen. It will happen. And then when it got cancelled again for that third time, it's like, no, I'm, I'm having a break. I need a break to, to just walk away from the MBS, think about something else, and then kind of go again for the April edition. Um, how many people that, that raced recently when you were there uh, had deferred and did that? affect the overall number of um, participants this year? I'm not too sure what the actual number of deferrals were, but there was um, there was there was a fair few that were mainly in the UK um, races that, that, that deferred. In total, I think there was a thousand people that actually paid their entry for the 2022 edition, whether that be deferrals or um, racing for the or racing for the first time. There was 902 that turned up at the start line, and I think it was 100, sorry, 800 that actually finished the the race. I can't remember what the normal dropout is. Um, it's probably about right. That just over 10 percent. Do you remember? Did they tell you at all? Uh, they didn't. They didn't. No. Uh, it's probably about right. And 
you know, they say they always say that the dropout rates for Ironman are very small, and that's because the number of people, you know, the number of hours that you train for it, you're not going to give up just because your your foot's hurting a little bit. But then um, there's a lot of other things that happen in I am um, in sorry in Ironman in Marathon de Sable that you just don't have any choice whether you're going to give up, really, do you? No. Um, okay. Well, so um, we we now know why you signed up. Good kudos to you for for constantly recharging your enthusiasm to get ready for the race and i'm sure you were able to draw on that in difficult moments uh, in the event as well which which we'll come up to but let's let's talk about preparation so um when people ask me if they could do the marathon disable i always say you know if you can if you can do an iron man you're more than fit enough to finish the mds and people don't believe me and i try and explain to them look actually it's it's just a very long walk through the desert and your challenges are not going to be aerobic. Your challenges are going to be boredom, um, hygiene, blisters. You know, sleeping in a sleeping in an open tent with seven other people that you don't know, and getting battered by dust storms every night. And they're like, "No, no, but I'm not going to be fit enough." Honestly, you will be. So, um, we'll talk about that in a second. I'm sure we'd had that discussion right at the very beginning when you said you wanted to do the MDS, and I said, "Okay, look, you know, you could actually keep training for triathlon." And uh, and then just do a bit more walking. So, um, tell me what you thought originally when I'd said, you know, of course you can do an um, marathon disable and because you've done an Ironman. Did did you believe me? I did because I think over the, the years that I've known you, all the advice that you've given me has been absolutely bob on, and it, it's been it's been perfect for what I've uh, achieved in endurance racing and to, to get me where I needed to get to an Ironman. So, so to kind of talk that through with yourself, it was like, okay, let's let's trust in the science and, and we'll kind of go for it. And I'd, I kind of agree that the, the the biggest challenge that you have is mental and also your feet. They're, 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 for me, they were the two biggest issues. Mental, the mental challenge that you have to push yourself through on, on certain stages. Then also it's just the taking care of your feet, the actual muscle soreness in the legs. The legs were fine. I didn't have, any, apart from being fatigued and tired, I didn't have any cramps. I didn't have any kind of real challenges with um, with any muscle groups in my legs. Tell us about your training then. Did did you carry on doing some cycling and swimming, or did you just run and I think walk? In in the initial build in twenty twenty, yes, I was doing a, a mixture of run, bike, swim, and also strength and conditioning. As the, the, the kind of time went through, going into the 2022 edition, I predominantly just focused on uh, walking and running and with a bit of strength and conditioning here and there. So they, that was the, the kind of two, key, three key areas, walking, running and strength and conditioning. Mm. And it was through the, the training of the, the, the two years of getting to where I was for April, I knew that being on my feet was going to be one of the most important things of just spending a lot of time on your feet for, for hours and hours and hours and on end. What what sort of split would you say there was um, in your training between the amount of running you did and the amount of walking? I would say it was about 70% walking, 30% running. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, I remember from both of those events that in the first couple of days a lot of people made an attempt to do some running although how much how much significant running you can do when you've got a 10 kilo pack plus plus the weight of your water so you're probably carrying 12 or 13 kilos on those first two days aren't you 
Yeah. Um, we, how, how much actual running you can do with that with that sort of weight on? It's more like shuffling. And again, if you're running through, if you're going through the dunes, there's not really much running to be done. No, we um, in our tent we had two guys that were really good runners, good fell runners as well. They ran that first stage, and after they got back into the tent, they went, "No, we're um, we're walking the rest." Yeah, and if you walk fast, you can still be you can still be pretty well up, can't you? Yeah, yeah. If you, if you've got a fast walk on, you you can do really well, and you can finish in a in a really good position. Yeah, this, uh, um, yeah. I, I I remember some friends of mine trying to. They were really keen on the results every day. You know, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, once I'd sunk onto a sleeping bag at the end of the day and got my food cooking, I couldn't be bothered to move anywhere. Plus, my feet were sore, so um, I didn't want to put them under any more stress by shuffling across to the uh, to the admin thing. Which is actually, when we talk about the, the village, it's, it's not it's not right next to your tent, is it? It's on the other it's on the other side of the desert. Really, yeah. seems seems like it is anyway. Well, with our tent position where we were on the horseshoe. We were right in the middle, right at the back. So we were the furthest point from everything. Yeah. So having to take your six kilos of water back to your tent after you'd finished the stage was an absolute ball ache. And then if you had to do anything else, it was to the point you're just like, nah, my feet are hurt and I'll just I'll just sit in the tent and rest. Okay. So you did you did seventy percent of your stuff was walking. Um how much time did you spend walking with your pack? And did you start off light and build it up? Um, yes. So that you were up towards um, in the last few weeks the, the sort of weight you'd expect to carry in the start of the race. Yeah. So initially, I, I built the weight up. So I tried to put the pack on as as many times as I could just to get it comfortable and get used to it, and almost kind of become a part of you, really. That that you just it becomes second nature that you've got your pack on. And with the weight, I started off with I think it was about three or four kilo. And then I just built it up and built it up and built it up. And it got to, um, I would say, even about six months out, I had pretty much the full weight of my pack. What, what was your weight? Do, do you remember what your yeah, starting so weight was? The starting weight for my pack was uh, 10.2 kilos. Yeah. Um, okay. So we'll come back to that in a minute. So there's lots of things we've got to come back to, but I'm trying to go through the timeline here. So once you finally, um, in fact, what was when did you actually find out that this year's race was going ahead? How much notice did they give you? I think that would have been after the October edition, after the, the kind of fallout from the October edition, and there was a kind of uh, a lot of challenges in in that edition last year. That um, within I think it was about three weeks, we got the, the notification to say yes, it, it's going ahead. But but still with with the COVID, but then there was obviously that other spike, wasn't there? Um, yes. You still must yes. have had a bit of doubt in your mind. So when when did you actually realise it was actually going to be fourth time lucky? I would say January, really, because uh, Morocco at the time still had closed borders. Mm. And it was about kind of end of January, start of February, that Morocco then opened up their borders and said, yes, we will start taking uh, tourists back into uh, back into the country. And then we had to do the, the PCR tests and go through the, the kind of COVID requirements to get into Morocco. And that, that was a bit of, um, that was an anxious wait, shall we say, 48 hours of all the planning and preparation that you've done. And you're just waiting for an email to, to come back to say, you're clear of COVID, you can board that plane. Yeah, actually, back at Christmas time, when um, our numbers were going up, 
I think Morocco was one of the first countries to ban specifically name British um British travellers as, as on the ban list, weren't they? And then France jumped in at Christmas. Um so they they were pretty strict. And I guess that Morocco had um, you know, despite what we think about the the compliance of African countries, they were they were pretty hot on it, weren't they? They were really hot and so we had to do PCR tests to, to get out there. And then when we landed in Morocco, we had to provide all of our paperwork on the double jabs and also with our PCR tests and they checked every single person's document. It wasn't just for the, doing the documents for the sake of it. Everybody's documents were checked and they also randomly pulled people out of the customs line and did COVID checks on them, and did tests on them there and then. So really stringent and hot on on the COVID protocols. So, so once you once you'd been through that, then uh, as far as I can recall, the process is you go to you go to Wazazat, right? Yes. Um, which is the sort of the main venue town, and then you stay there for like the remainder of that day. Did you, or was it a no, day and so a half? So we we were literally taken straight into the desert and straight oh, into the camp. Okay, right. And so once you were on that bus, was that considered to be some sort of COVID-free bubble then, because everybody had been tested? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and what about what about ongoing testing during the race? Then was was there any of that? No, no testing during the race. It was you're you're now in your kind of COVID bubble. You're not going anywhere else, so right, you should be fine. And there wasn't any incidents of COVID then. Um, no, 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 right. no, no records of um, any um, COVID. So right. that was really good. Okay, um, all right. So you, you you get straight on the bus. So. Quite a long journey, as far as I remember, through the mountains. Yeah, it, was, um, it was about two hours, two and a bit hours. Um, okay. So you had a little lunch stop, which was um, a small piece of bread and two tins of tuna. And some I remember. Bread. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And you just stop by the road, don't you? Everybody's you sort of kicking around in the dust. You get, did you get lots and lots of little kids coming to ask you for their um, for, for the for the bags and for any um, leftovers? No, where where we stopped, it was it was quite remote. So there was a, there was like a, a little, I'd say it was like a little cafe area, and it was just a, a mainly a car park and just two two gentlemen there, and that was it. Right. Okay. And my my memory is that it didn't matter where you were, no matter how remote. <laughs> lots of little kids would always suddenly appear as if from nowhere you know and then when you when you looked a bit more closely you could see these houses that were the same color as the rocks and um you know the uh, i suppose that they're, they're not well a lot of them are sort of semi underground aren't they because of the heat in the middle of the desert there so um so what about your tent mates then because that's a bit of a lottery isn't it sometimes who you get and you could end up with a really good tent or it or it could be a lot of friction yeah, we, we ended up with a brilliant tent. There was uh, right. myself and my friend Duncan, so we also knew each other. And then the the other lads, there was a, a chap, uh, Aaron, who was from America, but he's living in Prague at the moment with his uh, with his family. Uh, there was um, a guy called Eddie who was, um, he was from South London, just outside of London, who was a tele- telecommunications expert. Eddie was the, the fast runner, so he does a lot of adventure racing. It was a kind of a bittersweet event for him because he was supposed to be racing with his cousin. His cousin, who did his PCR test, got pinged in the Gatwick airport waiting oh, no. to fly out to say you've got COVID. So you can imagine doing all that preparation. You then get your PCR test come back to say you've got COVID. But he had no symptoms. 
Well, hold on. So wouldn't he have got his test result back before he went to the airport then? So it was, you have to do it within 48 hours. And he got it, I think about five o'clock on Thursday evening. Wow. Oh, because you went to the, you went to Gatwick and then you flew out on the Friday yeah, morning. So, right? so yeah, so we stayed overnight. So he, he okay. got that, that, he, that, that ping on the Thursday. So Eddie was kind of a wow. sweet race for him because he was hoping to do it with his cousin. So he was on his own. So he made friends with Eddie. He was a really good lad. And then um, we had Marcello and uh, Christian, who were two friends that had known each other for 20 years that decided to do the race. And then there was another chap called Rob who knew Christian. They'd worked together 15 years ago. They hadn't seen each other for 15 years and they'd both signed up for the MDS. So we had a, we had a brilliant tent. Rob was an absolute joker. So we, we had such a good time and such a good laugh. It really, it really does make the experience if you've got a really good tent. And the, over, first... the, the, tent the tent next to us, because you, you're, so, you're in close proximity, you could tell they were all just complete strangers and it was just small talk for, for the for the whole of their camp where we were just having such a laugh and such great banter that uh, yeah, it makes such a difference. The first time I went, I didn't know anybody. I rocked up at the hotel at Gatwick and I was with my, my wife at the time. So we sort of had dinner together and didn't really mix with anybody else in the bar. Went to bed. She was going to get the train home the next day. Um, I went to, you know, she came with me to walk to the check-in desk and um, I knew nobody. And then you get to the hotel and um, we stayed, we must have stayed overnight in Wazazat then. So I was I was just putting, I just said I'd be happy to share. So I ended up in a room with this guy called Graham Hedger, who turned out to be um, a, a guy who owned half of Notting Hill. He was like, he's like okay. a landlord. He started telling me about, oh yeah, when they did, when they filmed Notting Hill, yeah, those were my properties they were using, you know, when uh, when he comes out the door and all the press is there and everything. So um, he, he was an interesting chap. And um, then I think we must have had more than maybe, maybe we got to, maybe that's it. We got to the hotel and then we were able to spend some time around the pool in, in the afternoon um, before we went the next day. And so he said, oh, I've met these three girls called the Tough Mothers, Max, Mimi and Louise. Um, yeah, Mimi has gone on to become one of the world's best female endur- ultra-endurance athletes, and I've had her okay. on a podcast. She she holds the record for the fastest female to do double bad water marathon. Crazy. Right, yeah, so, but this, and that was her first event. So he knew those three girls, and so we went and chatted to them, and they they didn't have a tent here it, it, planned either, so they were all going to be there. So that was five of us. And so, you know, you went out to, in, in the buses, and then when you got there, they took you in these basic, like, tipper trucks. You just got in the back and sat there and some people in army wagons and they took you out to where the tents were. And then you basically got off and everybody just legged it to try and get a tent. <laughs> um, and then we ended it with these three other guys, um, Dave psycho, and then two brothers, Tim and Ben um, twins. So there was, I think there was nine of us in a tent. Yeah. It was a bit of a squash. I was going to say that, that, that was, it was snug for us for seven in the tent. So putting nine in that bivouac would be, yeah, that would be pretty snug. Well, those tents are just like, they're just like army canvas, aren't they? Um, with two open sides and the, the, the ends draped down, but they're not, they're not fixed into place by anything more than that. The center of the tent's just two pairs of big sticks, um, you know, crossed over like a teepee. And then at the end, they've got these three foot long wooden staves that just put in 
loosely in place to hold the end up. And I remember we had to take it in turns who slept at the end because the ends kept collapsing as soon as the wind picked up. And nearly every night, somebody wake up having a nightmare that they were being smothered and it was the tent that had fallen in on them. We had to make quite a, quite a lot of amendments pretty much every day to our, to yeah. our tent for where, where we were positioned on the, the kind of horseshoe. It was always open to the wind. Yeah. So we had to break the tent down, use our walking poles as kind of um, yeah. additional supports and then just put, going out for a walk, getting some big stones and rocks and then just closing off one side of it to, um, to, to keep the wind out. Yeah, I think, I think everybody goes through that. And did you find that um, you close off one side with those big rocks, which you didn't really want to go wander for, particularly after you've been out there for yes. sort of like eight hours and your feet are sore, that you then got to walk. And because everybody's nabbed all the best stones, you've got to keep walking further and further. Um, and then you set your tent up to protect you from the wind. And, and in the night, it seemed like the wind always turned around. And so the open part of the tent was like um, j- just collecting all the sand that got blown in then. Yeah, pretty much. The, it, you close off one end and then you say you wake up and you're still just covered in sand and dirt. It's like, yeah. Did you, did you have any Did you have any dust storms that blew through? Um, we had one sandstorm, one major sandstorm on um, on the second stage, and mm-hmm. that was that was pretty brutal to, to kind of walk through. But then when we got into the camp, it was still kind of we, we got the back end of it, so mm-hmm. we had to pin down both sides of the, the bivouac. So we just had this kind of tiny little hole where eight or seven lads were kind of getting in and out, and we all slept lengthways. Yeah, very hot, very sweaty but the tent stayed up in one piece where other tents were blowing around. So we were actually quite chuffed that it, it didn't fall down. Yeah. I remember one night, the second one, you, you could hear things rolling around and this noise, like a, like a, like a train thundering through. And it was, it was this dust storm. And I remember just be, being there listening to it and um, my sleeping bag, I was quite snug in my sleeping bag, but then once it started, it was like, once the wind blew the sleeping bag against your skin, it took all of the uh, the sort of heat away from me. I was abs- we were all absolutely frozen, and I was quite thankful. That was the one night I was thankful that we were all squeezed in together because it gave you a bit Certain of warmth. Body heat. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, these aren't tents, are they? For if if you've not done the MDS and you haven't seen any videos or photographs of this, these are like army tents without sides, as we said, and then they just the Berbers put down some basically like they're like flying carpets aren't they berber carpets on the floor and that's it and they don't care whether they put them on any rocks or thorns or those little sort of um star of thorn things that burst your uh, thermo rest yeah that's that's the one thing that i was really surprised with when we got out into into the desert was you think of the desert you think of the dunes you think of the sand the sheer amount of rocks everywhere Mm. that in the camp, but then also we're on the different stages when you're walking through different plains, just rocks, gravel, stone. That was the bit that I, I wasn't kind of ready for, not so much ready for, but I was surprised by that just the sheer level of stones. Well, I guess also if, because I thought that as well. And I guess also that if they put the tent camp, because, you know, the size of the, the camp, you said there was 900 people. And so if you had nine in a tent, that would be at least 100 tents, but more like probably 120, 130 tents, plus all the tents that the medicals and the organization have for, for the volunteers and for the communications and everything. 
so there's an awful lot of infrastructure that has to get put up and taken down every night and transferred from place to place. And if that was on dunes, it, it there wouldn't be anything for them to to put the um, pin it down to. to to pin it down with would they? So um, they have to find some hard ground, which obviously means then that it's not very comfortable when you go to sleep. But I think after you finish most of the stages, you were just like. I don't really care. I'm tired. I'll just deal with it. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about the stages then. So day one, uh, this is my recollection, right? Day one, you're lying in your tent and then at six o'clock, you probably haven't slept much anyway because it gets darker. It gets dark as soon as the sun goes down, doesn't it? So it's like somebody turning the light out. Yeah. You can't sleep at seven o'clock at night. So you lie there in your tent. The wind keeps you awake. The hard ground keeps you awake. You eventually get to sleep, and then at six o'clock, you get all these and the Berbers have come, and your tent seems to be the first one that they whip, whip, whip down. Meanwhile, all the French athletes, they get an extra hour in bed, don't they? they yeah. we, we were quite fortunate because we were on the, the furthest part of the, the horseshoe. Ours was generally one of the last tents to, to okay. be broken down, so yeah. everyone else is kind of getting woken up, and we're just sat in our sleeping bags going, yeah, an extra 10 minutes, we'll be fine. Yeah, well, we thought that the first time, but it seemed like they they started at different ends but they always seem to start with the british runners first so any flag that had got you know all these here the british runners i get them first the french could stay in last you know the americans and the rest of nationalities sort of after the brits um but it was bloody freezing in the mornings and you've got no tent to shelter in there's no point in staying in your sleeping bag because you need to start packing your stuff up and um i'd forgotten to take my little um windproof jacket you know those tiny little yeah. things to scrunch up and that was a huge mistake because you think well the sun's out it's going to be warm but you lose all the heat at night don't you because there's no clouds you do and those kind of little duck down scrunchy jackets are an absolute godsend for the evenings when the temperature does drop because you mm. it, it gets really cold at night but then also first thing in the morning when you're when you, you're tired you're cold you just put one of those on and Generally, you get your breakfast down you and you're kind of good to go. But then it's it's how quickly you take it off because you know, given 20, 30 minutes, you're going to be in the middle of the desert and the sun's going to be still quite warm yeah, yeah. at 9 o'clock yeah. in the morning. So you've got you've got all this time when you, particularly the first morning, you're trying to pack your bag, you're trying to fit everything in, the, the zips are bursting at the seams, you just about get it all in. And then you've got to go over to the to the big start, haven't you? The big, the big sort of blow-up gantry that's there. Um, that you run through every morning. And Patrick does that talk and he seems to be speaking to the French people for about half an hour. And then he comes on in, in English, doesn't he? He says, okay, so it's going to be hot out there. Follow everybody else. See you at the end. And it's like, was that it? So we we had a translator. So you had Patrick talking and then you had the translator. So by the time you got to the start line and those two were talking away, you, you stood there for like nearly half an hour at some point. So you're just like, I want to get going. Can you just can you can you cut your chat down, please? Can we just get the stage started? But it's didn't it ever didn't it seem to you though like you had loads of stuff to say in French, but not much in English. Yeah, and when the translator comes back, it's like, all right, let's go. Yeah. So you set off. Um, everybody's really excited. What what was the, the the format seems to have been pretty much the same for a few years? You know, you don't get to the big day day until about day four, but. Yeah, what so was the format about 30, 30 kilometers most days? Yeah, stage one was 30 kilometers, and it was kind of an introduction to the Marathon de Sable. So it was uh, a bit stony, there was a little couple of sand dunes, and it was generally flat. So you're thinking, this is, this is quite, quite nice. I can, mm. I can deal with this. It's, it's all good. 
mm-hmm. and you meet fellow racers and competitors, you're having a bit of banter, a bit of laugh, and you know, you're kind of generally in really good spirits and you get back into camp and you think, yeah, that was, that was all right. That was, that was manageable. That's, uh, that's good. And then you kind of do your admin, you, you get your food on the go, get your head down and then you kind of think about stage two and stage two was uh, 38 kilometers and you're thinking, mm-hmm. well, it's only eight additional kilometers. 30 I've just done in day one was, was decent, but stage two was, uh, yeah, it was hilly, so there was uh, a few jebels which you had to go over. Did you have but to go? Was... Did you have to go up that mountain pass where it gets a bit, bit exposed at the top, um, and you've got some cables to hold on to? Yes, yeah, so that was on stage three. Yeah. So, uh, but on stage two, we had uh, it was about a kilometre climb of uh, a jebel which we had to go up to. But pre that, we had uh, a four-hour major stand- sandstorm which we had to kind of navigate through and. That was definitely the, so you want to do the MBS, welcome to the Sahara Desert. The, I've, I've never experienced anything like that in my life where you've got 30, 40 mile an hour winds blowing in your face, but also sand blowing into your face at the same time. So mm. yeah, really, really difficult to, to kind of walk through, but then also to navigate through because generally when you're on the, the race stage, you can see the snake of people yeah. in the distance, but because you've got a sandstorm, it got to the point you couldn't see literally 10 meters in front front of you and one of the mandatory kit list is a compass so once you seen the that you've got a little bit of vision through the sandstorm you could see the, the 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 kind of top end of the snake it's like right get a compass out take a bearing on that point and we'll just walk on the bearing and that will hopefully keep us in the right direction and go there so one of my advice to, to people that think about doing the mbs is <laughs> Like most of us that were in our camp, we all looked at YouTube the night before to take a bearing on a compass. Yeah. So yeah. it's a mandatory kit that you might have to use, and we had to use it while we're out there. So definitely think about um, your your navigation skills. Yeah, because it's old school navigation, isn't it? You're not going to get a Garmin um, no. that, that you could download the route on and follow that because, uh, number one, your Garmin won't last uh, the, the the sort of duration of the race. Number two, there'd be nowhere to charge it if it did need recharging anyway. Um, so you get you get to, you get the road book, don't you, with all of the little um, directions. I, I found mine the other day actually while I was clearing out some stuff, and uh, the one from two thousand and one is or the one from two thousand and fifteen, which was last time I did it, was was not really that much different from two thousand and one. It was maybe a glossy cover on it, but I've still got it now. It's a bit, yeah. it's a bit dirty. It's still got a bit of sand in between the leaves of the, uh, the papers. But I, I do recall that the instruction generally was if there was a sandstorm, you were just supposed to squat down or hunker down and stay where you were because um, one of the most famous cases of somebody going missing was an Italian guy um, who they thought was dead for a while. He got rescued by some um, tribesmen, but he tried to carry on running during a sandstorm and got lost. Gone yeah, way off course. We we nearly got off course up until we had a bit of clearance on the on during the the sandstorm, and that's when so I got the compass out, took the bearing on on where the, the kind of snake of people was, and it's like right, let's just walk on that bearing, and we'll we'll get there. And there was a few points where you had to stop because the winds were just too hard to to walk into, so you literally crouched out, faced away from the the wind and and the sand that's going and blown into your face, and then you think when it's good to go again, you you kind of start walking. 
So what did you use? I mean, most people have got a buff. You can pull that, keep that around your neck. You can pull it up. You Maybe if you've got two buffs, you can put some sort of just like a little slit where you can see out of. And you, obviously you've got your sunglasses, but even so, that that on the times when we did have a bit of sand, that didn't seem to be enough to stop it getting in your eyes. Did, um, did what, so was I, your, what was your solution? So exactly what you just said. I had a buff which covered uh, my mouth and my nose, so that covered my breathing area. And the uh, the glasses which I got were they were, they were they were kind of sunken into the eyes, so they they really protected your eyes as well. And I, I bought them specifically for that reason, so we try and keep out as much sand as possible. And they did a really good job. And mm. I think when you do all these things, that when you start looking at all your kit and what potentially is your kit list, you, you can look at some really expensive stuff. My sunglasses were ten pound from the catalogue, but they were absolutely perfect and they did the job. Let's talk about the other bits of kit then, because that seems to be more of a challenge in getting it together than it does in, in just doing the training. Um, so some of the basics, backpack, they, they have a specific marathon disabled backpack now that they promote, don't they? But I, <laughs> I, 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 never, I never went for one of those because I just thought, well, when am I ever going to use it again afterwards? Well, that's the thing. When you go to the expo in the UK... You've obviously got uh, all the, the companies which are associated with uh, the Marathon, the Saab, and there's uh, there's a lot of um, kit companies that provide all different bits and pieces. So you've got Expedition Foods, which are doing the high-calorie freeze-dried food. You've got um, the, the bags. The, it was quite interesting. There's quite a few people that had the branded Marathon, the Saab bags, and they're not the best quality. So no. a lot of them were tearing and splitting in people's training. And so they ended up going to Radlite. I had uh, my bag. I went on eBay. This was back in 2019. Just when the, the, that edition had finished, what a lot of people do is because it's a one and done race, they just yes. sell off all the kit. Yes. So I got a 20 litre Huawei um, bag and it was perfect. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. So I can't remember what the, uh, um, what the name of the race kit was, but, um, did you say it was WAA one that you used? Yeah. yeah I think, I, I mean, I had a Salomon backpack because I was getting a bit of support from them at the time. Um, but, but the, uh, yeah, I can't, can't remember what they were. The, um, and then with the, the, the rest of the kit, you've got your mandatory bits and pieces, which you have to take, which they do all the kit checks. Well, they, they say they do the kit checks. But I didn't see any person's kit actually getting checked when we went through the admin, admin part of, uh, the, the, the stage mm. Mm. and i think it was myracekit.com if you go on there they, they've got like a marathon dissolved section where you can literally just buy a small pack that has all the mandatory safety pins a little mirror mm-hmm. um all the other bits and pieces the, the venom pump so you can <laughs> i've got two venom pumps never yeah. used <laughs> one careful owner <laughs> and that's it it's um that's the other thing as well we, we didn't see much uh beasties there was no scorpions that i think the really the only one i saw was a cricket wow we we saw some scorpions i'll tell you about those in a moment um what what about your shoes now this the first time i i did mds i got a pair of shoes um that had gaiters that you could attach by um, press studs and I thought these are going to be perfect and because they were open um, around the sort of you know the st- st- stitching area they were rubbish 
And um, I got sand in my feet straight away as soon as you started going through any deep stuff. So the second time, everybody went for that like parachute silk, um, create some gaiters, and then you, you you have to have Velcro stitched around the base of your shoe. Did you did you follow that method? Yes. So again, Rad Light do a gaiter which you can buy. Yeah, which I think has those the Velcro are, on it. I think those and are the ones I've got. Yeah. I used um, Hoka's for my for okay. my trainer. They were my trainer of choice, yeah. just because of the big fat soles and getting the the extra bounce and protection on your feet. And I found a local cobbler in one of the local towns to, to uh-huh. walk. And there's 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 a well renowned guy that does it on uh, the internet or MDS. He's based down in London. He charges a significant amount. Yeah. My local cobbler did it for did two pairs of trainers for for twenty bucks. Mine, mine did as well. I found a guy that's in a, in a village about five miles away. I, I took the photograph in. I said, can you do this? He went, yeah, come back in a couple of days. And yeah. I've still got the shoes, actually. What I might do is um, if you send me a photograph of your shoes, Andy, I'll, I'll do mine. And um, we'll put them on the show notes so people can have a look and, and see exactly what we're talking about. Because it's, it's a bit hard to envisage without a picture, isn't it? I'll, I'll show you. I'll, take, I'll show you a picture of mine because um, I, the, one of the biggest challenges which I had during a race was – after stage two, the seam of my hoka split. Did you use the MDS forum before the event? Because my my experience of that was it just did my head in with all the nonsense that was being taught. Much of it about the sort of shoes you should be using. Yes, uh, I, I used it, but it's, it's like all of these things that um, when you look at Facebook, there's everybody's got an opinion, whether that opinion's uh, correct or not. So you kind of got to make your own informed decisions and... You, you look at what other people have done in the past and then, yeah, just make a decision on it. Kind of I, do some analysis. And with me, with the Hokers, that my kind of go-to trainers, New Balance, I always run in New Balance. So moving to Hokers was um, different for me, but knowing that a lot of people use them, the benefits of them, that, uh, yeah, I decided to use those. And lo and behold, they, 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 they seem split on them. So... Everyone else that was in our tent had hokers, all perfectly fine. So whether I've just unlucky or not, I don't know. There's a, there's a guy called Rory Coleman. Yes. You know Rory? Was was he prominent on the forum? Because he, he runs a business, doesn't he, coaching people to do um, the MDS. And he's done it probably as many times as anyone else out there. And a lot of Rory's advice is based on his own experiences. But I remember him getting really vocal about the sort of shoes. And I think he was a big fan of Brooks. And, he, and, and the one thing I do remember was, Hokers are shit. The sit that the the soles are just too squashy with the heat; they'll fall apart, and and you'll be running around in, you know, flip flops basically. Um, yeah, he didn't like hokers, and he'd he'd have probably picked you out as the one person to like highlight in his argument. So I was just on the on the hokers. I was quite fortunate that Duncan, my friend, part of his preparation of his kit that he brought out on his walking poles, he put half a roll of gaffer tape. Oh, and there's one poles to take out, so we just got the gaffer tape out and mm. put it on the inside of the uh, the hokers, and that was it. It was fine. Right, the, the gaffer tape held them together for mm-hmm. the, the the rest of the stages, so worked an absolute treat. Yeah, little things like that that you don't think about. Now, walking poles. Um, again, split opinions on these. I had really bad Achilles problems on the last two days. Started it started on the long. The long day you know the overnight one and i was basically i was on um tramadol the, the french doctors who were the french doctors by the way i'll give them a big shout out they 
they have pockets full of drugs that they hand out like smarties and uh, they gave me tramadol but I didn't have any walking poles and I had to use those, you know, those staves that we talked yeah. about that you have in your tent. I've got, I got a couple of those, put a whole load of gaffer tape round and walked with those. And it really helped. Um, I think if I was to do it again, I probably would take walking poles. So we, we had this um, kind of discussion as well, that do you take them? Do you not take them? I did a bit of training with them and I'm so glad that I took them. And I would, I would highly recommend to anybody that's, thinking about doing the MDS, if you're walking that that edition of it, take walking poles out with you because they, they're just that extra bit of support that, that you need on some of the, the stages and the uneven ground that, you, that you're walking on. They're just that additional benefit. And if, if, you, if you're running it, there's still runners that have still got them in their backpacks for, to help on bits and pieces. But if you're walking it, I would highly suggest taking them out. Yeah, me, me too. I definitely think when your legs are getting tired they just take a little bit of the weight off there's some there are some sort of challenging sections where you're descending we did one bit where it was like um big slabs of rock running down through what was like a little gorge and that that was and then you had to come down onto the plane and then you know the uh the tent setup was about two kilometers away um the the some people use them down there because it just when you feel a bit unsteady on your feet it provides a third point of balance, doesn't it? Like a like a tripod. So. Yeah. Uh, and you can the telescopic ones you can get now fold up quite small. The only problem I found with with poles is, and I've noticed this when I go skiing as well, when people are not using them but they're walking up a hill, is they tend to hold them horizontal and they push back with the pointy bit. So I got stabbed quite a few times on my back uh, on on my leg by people who were sort of swinging them back and not really being very careful about where they were actually swinging them. Is that thing of uh, I think most people condition for social distancing how you just keep that little uh, yeah. additional couple of meters apart from people to, to make sure you don't get hit. Maybe that's what we should use for social distancing is a couple of pointy walking poles because that would really keep people back, wouldn't it? Do the trick. So, uh, you've done your shoes. What did you do about socks? So, I use the oh, I never pronounce it right in gingy socks, the, the toe socks. Okay, so I, I've trained in those socks and they were absolutely perfect the i think the mistake that i made was stages one to three i wore the same socks mm. stage four doing the long day i'd got a new set of ingy socks and after stage four was when i got my blisters right i think it's i broke the socks in so i've done a few walks with them but i mm. still think that's what caused my blisters did you take your feet up at all then as a precaution? Um, no, because right. generally all the training that I've done pre-going out to Morocco with mm. the socks on, never experienced any blisters, no problems with them at all. So I just thought I, I don't need to take them because my feet are generally in pretty good nick. Okay. So between stages one and three, no blisters. It wasn't until I did the long day when I changed the socks that I got blisters. Right. So we had this debate in our tent. Um, I had really bad blisters the first time that I did MDS. And I had, <laughs> again, seemed like logical thinking back in the UK where it's wet and you're not in, you know, you're not in amongst it. I decided I was going to wear sealskin socks because I thought, you know, the, the waterproof membrane would keep the sand out as well. Actually, what it did was make my feet like boiling a bag of meals. <laughs> 
Um, so that didn't help. Plus, once I'd got the sand in there as well, um, warm feet and sand. The warm feet, your feet swell up, which is why they recommend you get sizes, what, two or three sizes bigger than you would normally? Is that what you went for? No, so I only went, it wasn't even a larger size. What I went from Mahoka's was a larger um, kind of toe cap area on the trainer. So my trainers are actually size nines just with a larger toe yeah. area. Okay. And that worked fine for me. Do Hoka's have a specific sort of boxier size shoe then, or is that just... I, I generally don't know. So as I said, I normally don't wear Hoka's. So mm. when I was looking at the different um, varieties that were out there, I saw this one that was with the wider toe. And I was like, yeah, that gives my feet a bit of chance to, to breathe and to, to expand, as it were. Okay, well, that, that's interesting then, because you really don't know, do you? Um, when you're doing all the miles at home, you could you could walk 30K a day and have no foot problems, but it but you can't really replicate being out in the desert for eight hours, can you, in your training? No. So you really don't know whether that particular thing is going to work. And there are certain bits of your kit which are absolutely critical to your enjoyment and maybe even survival on the race. Shoes and socks and gaiters are one of them. Um, we, we went for, um, after my first experience, um, I decided that I couldn't, couldn't go through that again because the, they were just just so painful. Um, and it was like by the, by the end of the step, you know, the six days, my feet were like raw pieces of meat. And I, I resorted to going to Doc Trotters. And if you went and saw, if you saw anybody in your tent that went there, they basically cut the skin of the blister off and leave it open to the elements and then paint all this purple stuff over your foot. Um, so you, you look like a, you just look like a vic- an accident victim. You do. And I, I had to go to Dr. Otters after the, the long day to, to get my blisters sorted out. And when they put that iodine into your blisters to dry it out, it's not pleasant. But thankfully, I didn't have to get, I didn't have any blisters under my toenails. I'll, right. I'll lose my two little toenails because they got really bruised just from battering against some of the rocks. Mm. But other guys that were in our tent had to get, um, needles underneath and into the their big toenails e. to get rid of the blisters yeah i can remember that i remember being next to this woman who'd lost most of the sole of her foot you know it was yeah. just one big piece of skin that came off and she was a little korean girl and she was there and she was screaming so loudly it was horrible i was you know because they have you lying on your back with your feet on the stool don't they while they're doing all the stuff and I remember thinking, oh, poor thing. I bet she'll have to retire now. There's no way you could walk on that. Next day, there she was out there, sort of death ray, death ray stare, just looking ahead and sort of with her poles walking along and she made it to the finish. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we we went to the trouble of taping our feet up areas where I thought um, I would um, have problems and uh, – that didn't cause a problem. But the other thing we did, which is, again, it's a different strategy to what you use. I knew that if I take my feet up, I wouldn't be able to get my toes into those little toe socks. So yeah. that was a, that was a non-starter. We took two pairs of socks and I changed them every two or three hours. I went on, and this is one piece of advice I did, um, I did uh, in, benefit from. So thank you, Rory Coleman, was to, when your feet get sweaty, every checkpoint, take your shoes off momentarily, put put a dry pair of socks on and then hang the other ones on, on some of the webbing on your pack and let them dry. So they were dirty. They were full of sand. But you see, you could when they were dry, you could rub them together and get most of the sand off. So they were dirty, but they were dry. And that really helped as well. And I think everybody in our tent used the same 
um, strategy. And I, I had three or four blisters towards the end, nothing else, and they were minor. Yeah, I think when I did that long day, looking back at it, when I did it, I wanted to do it in one go and just get it done, not stop. That's when the blisters started to, to appear. I should have stopped and kind of looked at them and tried to sort them out. But I thought, if I take my trainers off, because my feet have swelled that much, I'm not too sure I'll actually get them back on. So it's just get your head down and just grind it out and sort it out when you get back into camp. I'm just reminded of the first time I did this, um, I was using those um, blister patches. Do you know the Compede ones with the gel? And um, on one of the stages, you can sit down, can't you? And there was, you know, they have some tents where you can sit in and everybody was sat inside this tent just getting out of the sun and cooking some food and just having a rest. And you'd basically sit down and sit back to back with somebody so you could prop each other up. And there was a guy next to me and he didn't have anybody behind him and he'd taken his shoe off and he looked at his shoe and he went, oh no, my foot's exploded. <laughs> and he just passed out like that. He just he just fell straight back. And so he was flat out. And what had happened was all of the gel that was in the compete thing had sort of melted. He'd put two or three of these uh, plasters over his blisters they'd melted with the heat and the pressure and, and when he'd looked at the blister um or looked at the plaster everything was oozing out of it and he did nice. in, in his sort of exhausted delirious state he thought his foot was melting <laughs> to get the medics for him i mean it was looking back on it it's, it seems quite comical at the time it was quite serious because everybody was buzzing around trying to make sure he was okay um Okay, right. So we've covered these are the things that people have questions about feet, footwear, walking poles. And um, what did you do about your sleeping bag and your um, mattress? Did you did you take a mattress? Yes, I took um, one of the kind of fold away zigzag mattresses. It's like just a bit of um, foam. Right. And after the, the the first two admin days where you're just in your kind of camp waiting to get processed when you go through the admin staging right that's it that's your race kit done i cut my foam because i had a big long one i cut it in half so i had a little little less weight to take yeah and that was fine to sleep on no issues T- takes a while to get used to it but again with the planning and preparation I had um, uh, two nights sleeping on the floor in my living room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My mother, my other half had COVID, so she was upstairs uh, isolating in the bedroom. So I was like, right, ideal opportunity to test out the sleeping bag <laughs> and to test out the uh, the sleeping mat. So again, try your kit before you go away. Something as simple as that of having a couple of nights on your, on your living room floor in your garage just to experience what it's going to feel like to, to sleep on it. Yeah, if I ate, Invite eight friends around as well, all sleep in the line like like little sausages in a packet and um, make sure that they're sleeping on the hard floor so they all fidget and sort of groan yeah. and toss and turn every 30 seconds. The, the, the one thing I'd say about the, the sleeping mats is uh, Rob, the, the guy that was um, sleeping next to me, he had one of these blow-up ones. Yes. And it was like rolling on a crisp packet. Yes. So you're, you're trying to sleep and it's just like... <laughs> He's got the thermal. I think he's got the thermalite, um, the thermarest ultralight. Uh, so we've, um, I've still got mine. And John, who was one of my tent mates um, uh, for MDS, he's got his. We were doing a bike packing thing last year, and we've all got single tent, single man tents. 
and John had got his thermo rest and I'd forgotten about how noisy his was because mine's exactly the same as his, but it doesn't make anywhere near the crinkly sound. And he was in his tent and everybody was laughing because he was trying to get comfortable. And it just sounded like you've described there that somebody's in a packet of crisps wrestling with something. And, uh, it is. and, and when you're tired and you're trying to sleep yeah. and somebody yeah. next to you is just like, oh, my word, just yeah. sit still, please, so I can just sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that. I, I took a, I took a blow-up thermorest. Um, it was the half-size one because you don't really need anything for your legs. Um, right. you're, on, you're on the carpet um, the only problem with the thermores was that those little crown of thorns, um, things that you tend to find that stick to your clothes, we we had loads of those in the tent uh, a couple of nights, and a couple of people ended up with their thermores bursting because they were just lying on those crown of thorns, and they're, they're sharp enough to um, pierce the the membrane. Um, so that, that's why I went for the zigzag foam for yeah. just again just trying to mitigate any problems. Yeah, well, what we did was nominate one person. The person who was back first had to completely sort of minesweep the tent for any uh, dangerous implements, mostly those and scorpions. Um, okay, what about your food and your cooking? So, because, again, there are um, different schools here. I saw quite a few people who didn't bother with a, a stove. They collected a bit of wood and stuff and then s- s- dug out a little scrape and um, created their own fire there and, and cook their own stuff um we went for one of the little gas stoves um yeah we we used one of the, the tiny little stoves which put the esbit box on and yep. then just like that we'd either had a little foil um wind protector around it to keep all the heat in or we used trainers as a wind block or we just dug a hole to yeah. to use that as a wind block but yeah the the, the, the food side, I used a mix of um, expedition foods for my uh, for the main meal, which was a high calorie, roughly about a thousand calories per 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 meal. Yes. Breakfast was just a standard muesli. It was a standard muesli, and I just added some nuts and raisins in it to give me some additional calories right. and some powdered milk. So all you had to do was just pour your water in and you're good to go for your breakfast. You didn't have to worry about faffing around cooking. The only thing that I cooked in the morning was um, a water from a coffee. Yeah. And that yeah. was it. And then for the, the kind of the stages, I just used a, a mix of different protein bars. So I've um, got different flavors to, to kind of keep it, um, keep the variety different. Yeah. And as a snack during the as after the stages, I had a, a salt salty snack, which is just like a, a pack of uh, peanuts, which I'd repacked. And then as a sweet treat, I've got some, you know, the uh, the banana and shrimp flumps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do. Because they, they 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 retain their shape and texture in the heat. Yes. So I had a packet of those and some peanuts. They were my my camp treats. Okay. Well, and we, the, go on. Yeah. I was going to say the, the, the other thing was be really mindful about your calories. Everyone thinks I need to take loads of food out of me. So the, the minimum requirement is 14,000 calories for the, for, the, for the week that you're out there. Yeah. And I took 20,000 out. And I, I thought I didn't have a lot of food. But by the end of the camp, I was actually giving some of it away because mm-hmm. I just took too much. Right, so that's that's an interesting point you make. So the two thousand calories is, is roughly works out at um, 
Well, four calories, uh, f- four calories is like a gram, isn't it? So um, uh, a thousand calories is like two hundred and fifty grams. Is that right? So the, t- the two, the two, yeah, the two. I think the two thousand calories you, you require a day weighs half a kilogram. So, and you've got fourteen thousand. So you're going to be carrying about three and a half kilos of food. Yeah. And then you've got to think about all the other stuff. Even if you cut the end off your toothbrush and do all those little things, um, it's amazing how quickly the weight adds up. And you've got ten kilos, and your bag won't shut. Um, and if you're carrying any more food, then obviously that's going to make your bag heavier and, and of course then you're going to have to carry that food so you're gonna to have to work harder so it's it's not like a double-edged sword isn't it um if you actually look at the pace that you're going at and the speed at which you're moving you're mostly going to be in if you've trained for this you're mostly going to be in a fat burning zone so the question is how many carbohydrates do you really need over that week that, that was my argument was, do I, do, do I really need 2000 calories in it? I would say that I had this exactly the same experience personally. and with tent mates was that they were mostly giving away food. It was just when you've got a large quantity of sort of, you know, high energy food, sometimes there's just too much to eat as well yeah. when your stomach's hot and cramped. And, um, so I went for, um, I went for uh, pot noodles you know, that was our discussion in the tent because the majority of us had either expedition foods, high calorie for our main meals, or I think it's Lilo, which is another version version of high calorie freeze-dried meals. And when we kind of got out there, we were, we'd taken pot noodles out with us for our kind of uh, the, the two admin days because we didn't know what the food was going to be like that they provided for you after the October yeah. edition with everyone coming down yeah. with sickness and diarrhea. We were like, we'll just take our own food just in case. And then we were looking at the pot noodles and they were like, this pot noodle's got nearly 700 calories in it. Yeah. And that would have, that would have sufficed. And we all kind of said, if we were to do it again, yeah. we would most probably take super noodles or some type of pot noodle out with us rather yeah. than going down the route of spending a large amount of money on some of these high calorie um, branded uh, expedition foods. Well, I, I can't remember the name of the company. I managed to persuade them to supply me this stuff at cost price. And I got it all bagged up. Number one, it was quite dense and heavy. Number two, um, actually I only had two different flavors. And so, you know, when you've, when you've been eating that, you know, there's no variety. It's just, it was like eating gruel and I tried them at home and I thought, you know, I've got these, but I just can't eat them. So I took pot noodles and the thing for me is pot noodles high in cat number. Cause I know people say, well, that's not very healthy. Well, let me tell you when you're in the desert for seven days, it's not about staying healthy. It's about survival. Um, number two, well, they've got lots of salt, haven't they? Yeah. And what else do you want when you're sweating all day? Number three, um, there's lots of carbohydrates. Yeah, of course there is some, uh, there are some additives and things in there that you perhaps don't want, but I don't know anybody who's um, eaten um, one pot noodle a day and died yet. So as long as it didn't kill you, it's fine. Um, they were really light. Plus, once you took them out of the packet and crunched up all of the noodles, um, you could compact them. So they were much, um, you know, it's what you call calorie-dense food rather than nutrient-dense. And that's really what you need when you're out there. Um, I did have some muesli in the morning, so like you did. And I, I think we had some, um, like, trail mix type yeah. um stuff which is the camp stuff so it's a mixture of salty and sweet 
Um, I think I found that uh, even M- the little M&Ms, the li- all the little Smarties don't melt as long as they're inside. So um, that was nice. And particularly if I had little baggies mixed up for each day and then yeah. I kept them in my pocket. So I didn't look to see what I was getting out. So then you might have something that's salty or something that's sweet. So I, th- I think that's the thing of making sure you've got a variety of different flavors and foods and textures when you go out there, because you just say, if you're eating the same thing, it soon becomes tiresome. You say it gets like you're eating gruel and you can, you can try eating the same thing when you're in the UK, but as you said, or wherever you, you live, but as you said, when you're out in the desert, in the heat, your body reacts in a completely different way. So then eating the same food every day, it soon becomes a bit of a chore and, thankfully i didn't have any problems with uh, my food but duncan who i raced with after about the third day he really struggled to, to eat some of the, the high calorie meals so he ended up eating he took a few desserts without out with him he was ended up eating desserts as his kind of nutrition did you you took coffee you said so did you, you took yes. just some uh, some little sachets did you freeze freeze dry so stuff I've, i got um some real gourmet coffee coffee sachets for i think it was my birthday or christmas for my oh you did you didn't get um the um uh the mushroom ones did you no no so they're all from all these um different uh, coffee growing places but they were they were like um it was like a, a bagged cafetiere Mm-hmm. So you literally just pour the water in, the water yep. goes down into the yep. bottom, and then tip it like Brilliant. a And it was my other luxury that I, I had mess cafes, freeze dry sachets to take out with me as well. So yep. I had enough to see me throughout the day. And one of those in the morning was just just enough for me, and that was I was good to go. Yeah, I. I did the same. Um, my friend John, he had little Nescafe sachets, and I said, "I'm going to try and go for these things." He went, "I don't know why you're bothering. Coffee's coffee." And I went, "No, no, it's not." And and after day three, I said, "Do you want to try one of these?" He's like, well, "Have you got any more? Let's do a swap." Um, I I tell you what, I also took. You know, you get little plastic bottles off the planes with the uh, with just one two two shots of tequila or vodka yeah. or something. I took a few of those out with me. Like I had a little whiskey one. I had a couple of brandy ones. Did that um, again in our kind of tent talk that we'd wish we'd done the same, but we took like a little miniature out and just had a, like a cheeky little uh, nip of something. Yeah. Though the other thing I did was I had hot chocolate because I thought that the chocolate would um, uh, be calorific as well. So it's like a dessert, like something sweet um, it was something that I could mix up quite easily with the water. And um, yeah, I found that I found the hot chocolate mixes were really good. You just made a really good point because I didn't take any of that out. And I just thought I'll, I'll be happy with my coffee. Yeah. And then some of the other guys in the tent had hot chocolate. And when they gave me one of their hot chocolates, because again, you're just passing out food and sharing it. And yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing to have a hot, sweet, chocolatey drink. Yeah, that um, when you've been eating all these different things, it was just a different texture, different flavour. So I'd highly recommend that of taking a just a couple of hot chocolate sachets out with you. I also think that you could do something like taking um, some some flavoured tea bags with you. Um, you know, if you took if you took one for at night time, um, it just again gave you a different taste and had that as your evening brew. Because I don't like drinking. I mean, I don't like drinking coffee in the evenings. It affects my sleep, and of course, we all know how good quality sleep is in the desert. But, yeah. um, but I think a flavoured tea bag. Um, I also took the effervescent tablets for salts. Did you Did you take those? Uh, well, we got given the salt tablets um, when you uh, go yeah. out there. Yeah, and... I found I found that, and I saw a few people throwing up, and when they threw up, 
<laughs> everything came out of the stomach, including undigested uh, salt tablets. Yeah, they, they were fine for me. So again, right. as soon as you get out in the desert, that's one of the first things that they give you and you just start taking them regular and yeah, never had any problems with any cramps or anything like that or any digestion issues to, no. to, to swallow them. Um, let's talk about any final things then. So Kit, what, what about your sleeping bag? Did you go for anything special on that? No, not really. Um, I used a mountain warehouse duck down bag, which was you could get some really super light, expensive sleeping bags. I think mine was 80 bucks from mountain warehouse. It was fairly light, not as light as some of the other guys, but did the trick. Did the trick. The weight, they say, I think it was about three, 350, 350 grams. It wasn't huge, hugely heavy. And the warmth was fine. So it was, it was like, I think it gets down to that the bag was minus one. There was a couple of nights when you got chilly, but not to the point where that was freezing cold. So what, what I did was I went cheaper sleeping bag. Um, most important, I thought, was how small it packed up. Um, and I took a silk liner, which packs up like the size of your fist when it's scrunched up. And they had about five degrees of warmth. Um, so I found that in the evening, you know, when you first went to bed, it was quite warm. So you'd be lying on top of your sleeping bag. Then as you sort of go to sleep, then you wake up again feeling cold. So you get in your sleeping bag. So I would get inside my thumb, uh, inside my silk liner then. And then if I um, then got cold again, I would get inside the sleeping bag. So that that was a, that, that for me was better to use that combination than have a slightly thicker sleeping bag. Um, yeah. And uh, I, we've done it when we've been bike packing. Um, with two using two silk liners again, which is even even smaller. Okay, so I think we've done kit, we've done food. Um, let's talk briefly then about the various stages. So you did the um, you did the first two days. The third third is it the third and fourth day then, which is the ultra long stage. Yeah. So day three was thirty eight kilometers, and right. that was a lot of hills, a lot of jebels. So it was just you just felt like you were constantly going up and down, up and down. And I would. If anybody's thinking about doing it, I would suggest doing some some super high hill work. So getting into the uh, Peak District or the Lake District or yeah. Snowden, somewhere like that, and actually do some real hilly mountain mountain walking, not just going up your local yeah. your local hill. We've got a hill which is local to Corby, which is called Rockham. It's got a twelve percent um, hill with it's about a kilometre and a half climb, and on the bike it's a nice nice climb and i did a few training sessions literally spent three four hours going up and down that but it's nothing for the size of those jebels so i'd, I'd really if i was to do it again i'd get into the, the peak district which isn't too far from me and actually just spend a couple of weekends doing some some proper hiking and, and hill walking yeah i know some of the people were talking about going down to south wales to do the dunes for me i'm like yeah i think you just want to be more of your time on rough ground, uneven ground, getting used to sort of slightly treacherous footing, um, just just stuff that's going to build robustness in your ankles and in your mind. I'd agree with that. We, Duncan and I, did a training camp out in Fuerteventura. Ventura. We did our own DIY training camp because Fuerteventura Ventura's got a national park, yeah, yeah. which yeah. is just, I think it's like three, three and a half kilometres of sand dunes. And we just found a hotel just off the... The, the the corner of the the, the park and we just spent a week on the sand dunes which was great yeah but again we, we we got to learn about the different types of sand and different structures really good 
But if I was to do it again, it's that uneven ground. If you spend more time on gravelly rock, stone and uneven ground than you do actually on sand. Yeah, I found the same in Lanzarote because we had that place out there and um, we used to walk out the back and you could go up just across the, basically it's, it's exactly that terrain. It's rocky, it's dusty. There's some sand. I mean, it doesn't matter whether the sand is, the jebels are a thousand meters high um, or 50 meters high, or if you're just walking through soft sand on the beach, it's soft sand, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so we spent, we spent a lot of time walking up the volcanoes, but not on the marked paths. And then, and then at the end of every day, we'd we'd find the softest sand on the beach and walk down and back, which is three kilometers. And that when you when you're pushing, when you're trying to push off, and your foot's sort of slipping back, it's like it's like walking through the snow, isn't it? It's um it's very tiring. And doing that with a 10k pack really saps your strength. And that's that's what led to my Achilles problems, really. And that that's where the walking poles come into play when yeah. you are tired and you you've got really uh, you're struggling with your feet. To, to get any kind of grip in the sand, the walking mm. poles just give you that extra bit of support and uh, grip. How long was your longest stage? So that was 84 kilometres, and I've never done anything like that no. in my life. I've done a 24-hour endurance race where you just do 10K laps for, for 24 hours, and I think the longest we did was 33 miles. And, yeah, never experienced anything in my life of doing 50 miles on your feet and Duncan and I had two different strategies. My strategy was to, I want to do it in one go, one hit, get it done. Duncan split his in two. So he did, um, he walked up to about stage, uh, sorry, the, the fifth part of the checkpoint. And he then had a little sleep for four hours and then carried on once the, the sunlight uh, come up and for me it was like no nah, I want to I want to just go through it and try and smash it out in one go and I'm glad I did it but it was also it was very very hard it got to the point to say that was the point when I got um, blisters and you get to a point where your feet are sore and it gets to a point where your feet are just kind of numb you, you kind of numb the pain out because you've been walking for so long mm. and you, you, you just you kind of ignore the pain. It just then becomes part of what you're just going through. Yeah, and I, I don't know whether you found this, but I, you know, you were talking earlier about leg fatigue. It was just like my legs were just heavy and, and just not like sore like running in an Ironman, but they were just heavy and I wanted to stop. But if I knew if I stopped, sat down, I'd just have to do it. I'd still have 20K to go. So we just kept going. We did on one of those checkpoints, there was a whole load of deck chairs that were out and we all got one of those out and we wrapped ourselves up in our silver blankets and just sat there on these deck chairs for three hours um, and, had, and had a little bit of a sleep. Um, but yeah, we, we finished the next day about lunchtime. We'd, we'd had a couple of guys who were, we picked up a couple of guys who were really struggling and we sort of agreed that we would try and get them to the finish. So we went at the pace of the slowest man. Yeah, so I want to do it in a one-er and I got, I was about 12, 13 hours into the walk. It was, I think it was about quarter to one in the morning, something like that. Maybe a bit uh, later, I can't remember, but I was, I was going through sand dunes at night. You can't see the elevations of the sand dunes, so you're just kind of looking down and it just felt like I was walking in treacle. Yeah. It, it really, just time just was staying the same. The distance was staying the same. And it was just like, will this ever end? And I was feeling a bit delirious. I hadn't had, uh, I hadn't had a drink or hadn't had any nutrition for um, a couple of hours. So I stopped at the next checkpoint. 
I made myself a cold coffee, so I didn't worry about heating it up. It's like, right, cold coffee, get that down me, bit of food. Looked at the, the other thing, I looked at the stars. Yeah. Because you've, you've got no artificial light. Yeah. So you can see a million stars. So when you do these races, a lot of the time you've got your head down, you're focusing mm. on getting to the next checkpoint, and you see the stars. But at that point, I just lay back and said, right, I'm going to appreciate where I am in the middle of the desert and enjoy just the view, enjoy the stars. And it was absolutely amazing. And then that gives you the energy to, to kind of go, right, yeah. on. you've got 20 kilometers to go, get your head down and just smash it out. And that's what I did. So we did exactly the same. We were going through the dunes and I said to everyone, all right, just stop a moment. Let's turn our torches off. Let's lie down on this dune and let's look at the stars for five minutes and enjoy the silence. And, it, you know, there's, there's no noise there apart from the sound of the wind whistling across the sand or through any vegetation. There's no, um, there's no ambient light there, no light pollution. And it was fabulous. I said, how many times are we going to get to do this in your life where it's complete silence and complete, completely no light? And yeah. uh, it was brilliant. And that was when we saw the, um, the scorpions we saw okay. a scorpion so we we got the torch and he was he was obviously in the light then he was getting his little tail up and getting a bit angry and um we also saw some camel spiders i don't know if you've seen those things there i've, I've only seen the pictures and right never seen well, them. when we got when we got back to the end of our long day it was like lunchtime the other four had got back in the middle of the night um, so they they were already sort of resting, you know, because that that day that second day is either for finishing off your walk or resting, isn't it? Before you do the marathon stage the next day. So we got back and we were busy telling them about this uh, spider that we'd seen, how big it was, and, and Michelle, who was lying in the tent, just lying there on a sort of propped up on her elbow, said, well, "How big was it?" And I said, "Oh, it'd be like that one that's hanging on the tent above you, Michelle." And she went, "Simon Ward, if you're joshing me." And I said, no, "Honestly, Michelle." And then they all the others started looking and laughing and going, "Well, you might want to move from there." This thing was clinging to the Hessian underneath the tent. It was absolutely huge. We got one of the Berbers to come, and instead of just getting rid of it, he beat it to death with a stick. <laughs> it, honestly, it was phenomenally. It was huge, and they they don't they're not poisonous but apparently they bite you they give you a nasty nip um so yeah we did we did see uh we see a couple of scorpions and a couple of um a couple of camel spiders including one in our tent yeah but that was it i don't think anybody i don't think i ever saw or heard of anybody finding a scorpion in their shoe the next morning although right. everybody diligently checks every morning don't they just in you case do. that's the first thing you do give you a little shake out just to make sure yeah how, how did you find the marathon stage then on um, on the last but one day? Brilliant, because it's that when I did the long day, I was pretty much on my own for the majority of it. There was a couple of people that you walk past and you say mm -hmm. hello and you have a little chat, and, but you're predominantly on your own for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And my thought process was during the long day that I've broken the back of this you do the long day, you've pretty much done the race because you, you say you've only got a marathon to do, but you've done the hard yards, you've broken the back of the distance. And on the long day, I was getting emotional because I was thinking, I'm going to do this, I'm going to finish. And I thought, I'm going to be in bits come the marathon stage when I actually get across that finish line. But on the marathon day, myself, Duncan and Rob from our tent, we all did it together. So we, we walked that, that stage together and we had such a laugh. We were just 
had so much banter during the during the walk that we were all just in a really euphoric state. Mm-hmm. And when we finished the cross line, we were all just having a real good laugh. And yeah, it was it wasn't what I expected because I said I expected to kind of be in a bit of an emotional wreck finishing it, but it was the complete opposite because we'd got two friends. Obviously, Rob Duncan I'd known for twenty years. Rob that I've just kind of met, but it was like we'd known each other for 20 odd years and just having a really, really good time and a good laugh. And when we finished, Patrick almost said to, he's like, he's like, why are you not all emotional? And we're just like, yeah. Did you have a a charity walk to do the the next day? Yeah. So you've got the solidarity walk to do. You have to put, you have to put your t-shirt on. So you you walk, I think it was six kilometers that you, that we had to walk. And where they, where they finished the, the marathon stage, it was where all the, the classic huge dunes are. Yep. And you just kind of staring out going, have I got to walk over those dunes? Because yeah. the, the thing I don't get is you get your medal after the marathon day. Yeah. You still got to do the yes, solidarity it, stage. Exactly. If you if you don't do it, then you're not considered to have completed it. Yes. And that, was, that, yeah, we had, we had all those. Uh, I think it, it may have been a similar route that you did to us then because that sounds like um, – the, the pass that you talked about earlier and, and going over the dunes in order to get to the buses. So we, we were quite fortunate as well. So one of the guys that, that was in our tent, when we got back to the, after we finished the marathon stage, he's uh, an MD of the restaurant chain and he got a bit of phone signal and he basically phoned his PA and arranged for his PA to get us two four by fours to come and pick us up from the charity oh. stage because you've got a six hour coach journey to get back into uh, yeah. the town that you're staying in. Yep. And Marcello was just like, I do not fancy six hours on one of those coaches, no air conditioning. No. Your, your food's going to be a bread and two tins of tuna. So Marcello spoke to his PA and she basically arranged for two four by fours to, um, to come and collect us. We took two and a half hours off the journey we stopped halfway for lunch. We got an absolutely beautiful kind of spread, salad, <laughs> barbecue, and the most important thing, we got beer. We had to get on the bus. And I remember everybody going on about how their feet were swelling. My feet looked like I'd got elephantitis. I've got, I'll see if I can drag out the photographs though, that everybody was sitting there. They've got the socks and shoes off. It smelled like a, a rugby, yeah. rugby players dressing room. And you could, you should have seen the state of people's feet. They were just from sitting down after all the exercise, they were swelling up. Um, and then when we got back, there was a bit of confusion about where your rooms were. So we ended up queuing for ages, having to go to the hotel. The, the one good side of that was because for some reason there was no rooms. We ended up in this really palatial suite in the Berber Palace. Um, so that was good. But at the end of the, uh, my recollection is at the end of the marathon stage, they gave you a beer. Did you get a little can of beer? We got a Coke. Oh, maybe it was a can of Coke. Did you have an opera singer that came out as well? Yeah, we did, yes. Yeah. And and I, people went to, I couldn't be bothered to go walk to watch the opera singer, but I remember lying in the tent and this listening to this just beautiful sound wafting across the desert and thinking, am I in a dream now? Or have we actually got an opera in the middle of the desert? Well, we've just finished a sort of seven-day trek. It is surreal, isn't it? That we were yeah. pretty much the same thing. That where where our tent was to the uh, the opera singer, we could actually see them from our tent. So we were like, "No, nah, we're just resting." But then you literally 
lying back in the middle of the Sahara Desert in a kind of little shack tent mm. and you've got this beautiful opera being sang mm. and you decide like, this is really, really bizarre and surreal and how, how many times you're actually going to get this opportunity or this mm. experience in your life. Mm. Brilliant, Andy. I've really... It's really brought back a few memories for me that has. I'm going to have to go and look at my uh, MDS album now from the first yeah. time. Um, that was that was one thing. You, you did mention something about the stars, um, which for me was the difference between my first, and we talked right at the beginning about it being an experience, um, and the difference between my first um, time there and my, the difference in my second time was this metaphor for life about going walking around with your head up and observing stuff and noticing what's going on rather than walking with your head down, looking at the ground. And I felt like my first one, I, I did treat it more like a race. And although I wasn't racing for any position, um, it felt like that. And so I was like, like in the Ironman world of pain where you, you can't really take anything in. And on the second one, I realized that I'd missed an awful lot of stuff. So I did definitely walk around with my head up and take note of things. So they were like, you'd, you'd be walking along the gray, you know, this valley and, it's just all sandstone and sort of that ready orange. And then you see this building appear and it's a, it's a massive fort that's built out of the rock. Yeah. But because it blends in with all the other colour, unless you did have your head up, you'd just walk past, you'd walk past it and not notice. Or when we talked about the little kids coming out, you could see these little villages that were dug into the sand and that was where the children come from. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think there's definitely a metaphor for life about going around with your head up and experiencing things rather than just sort of being in your own being in your own world, do you think? Yeah, so Duncan and I talk about this a lot, that we, we kind of call it, you've got one lap of the track in life. Yeah. So enjoy that lap and take it all in. Keep your head up. Enjoy the experiences. Look around. Take the time to look around. And as you say about um, the children, we, we've been walking for quite some time between one of the checkpoints, been walking for about three, four kilometers in the back end of nowhere, we'd seen no habitation, no nothing. And we just come across a lady and three of her children. And with and she's like waving, sort of like, bonjour, bonjour. And we're thinking, where's your actual home? Where do you actually live? Because we've just walked three, four miles, not seen a thing. Yeah. We walked to the next checkpoint again another six kilometers not seeing a single bit of habitation thinking where do you guys actually live uh, did you work it out no we didn't we're stumped but it's it's that thing you could you can kind of just get your head down walk past those people but it's like no take it all in think about it enjoy the experience and yeah we 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 had two experiences like that one was coming across this um local I, I, I call it i can't call him a nomad because he was actually he was on a little honda um or yamaha fs1e or a honda cb90 motorbike just sat there in the middle of the desert and he just got this remarkably he wasn't a young chap he got this remarkably weathered face with all the character lines and everything across it and i i wanted to take a photograph of him but i always think it's rude to take you know some some yeah, cultures are, exactly the same um some cultures are very protective about you taking a photograph of the face or the eyes, aren't they? So we asked him if we could take a photograph and he was putting his hand out and I was thinking, oh, he wants to shake your hand. No, no, he wanted some money. <laughs> he wanted us to give him some money and uh, we didn't have any. So uh, we, I can't remember what we gave him, but um, he was, he, he didn't speak any English and he was going, he kept saying Manchester United, Manchester United. Yeah. <laughs> 
they're absolutely mad crazy, aren't they? So often with the kids that we came across had all got Real Madrid or Man United or Liverpool shirts on in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's uh, it's bizarre the things that you see. Yeah. Um, three bits of advice, Andy. Think of three things. You've, you've touched on a few today. If, if somebody said to you, right, Andy, I'm planning on doing this, what, what advice would you give me? What, what are the three key things? I would say commit to the training. Make sure that you do the right level and consistent training. That's You can't mess around with this race. Unfortunately, there was a fatality in October and not too sure what caused that. But there was quite a number of people that dropped out in this stage. And there was a guy that unfortunately on stage two um, collapsed in front of me. And he was quite a large fella. His pack was massive. And didn't get a chance to talk to him because we had to get kind of get him sorted out and we, we, we kind of passed the message down on the dunes to get the medics to, to come and to, to look after him. But whether he prepared for it correctly or not, I don't know. But I would say you've got to commit to the training. The, the other thing which was really, really beneficial, which helped Duncan and I, was we did heat acclimation two weeks um, to going out and we used uh, Bedford Sports Science University. Yeah. And... I'd suggest to anybody that's looking to do this race, get in contact with any local sports universities that are in and around your area because there's some private companies that do it and it's quite expensive. Yep. But Bedford University, because it's part of um, their, their student studies, we got it at a really discounted rate. And the, the guys in Bedford were phenomenal. They did, um, they did sweat tests. They did... Um, hydration tests on us they did core temperatures they did pretty much covered every base and the heat just wasn't an issue for us it got up to about 40 degrees it was mid 30s late 40 so mid 30s 40 for for when we were out there for most days and the heat just wasn't an issue because we've done that heat acclimation Mm, we we did the same actually um at Leeds university mark mark um hetherington took us through that and it, what was interesting, actually, was we, we had um, over two weeks, we had five, uh, six sessions, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the first week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the second week, and then on the Sunday, oh, the, um, and then we stopped before we went out to um, to Morocco. And each time he was taking all the data, how much fluid we were losing, how much we were consuming, what our um, effort levels were like yeah. versus our core temperature. And it was amazing that um, how the body responded and adapted to that exposure to the heat. And you could see the statistics in the first um, session to the last one were a massive change. So it, it definitely does make a difference. Yeah. And it's, it's also just understanding that data. If you, if you use um, a really good university or, or someone that provides that, um, provides that for you, it's, it's just understanding that data. So speaking to a couple of other people that used um, some other facilities around the country, they just didn't get that, that level of data. No. And if that was me and I'm paying for that, I'd, be, I'd kind of be asking for that level of data. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, then, and, and there's also a level of confidence, isn't there, in knowing that you can see the change in your body and how your body's responding to heat. And yeah. then when, when it's put together with somebody knowledgeable about heat acclimation explaining to you that actually look this this is how it's going to make a difference you get a level of confidence that you cope with the conditions yeah and also the the, the two guys that were doing our heat acclimation they just give you little tips little hints and tips hints and tips to cope with the heat and also cooling um, strategies to, yeah. to cool yourself down and 
um, yeah, that, that worked that worked brilliant for us. Okay. So so commit to training, heat acclimatization or heat acclimation, actually, it's called, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Then number three, which we've just kind of talked on, enjoy the experience. Yeah. Because for most people, it's a one and done experience. It's a one and done thing for me. And I went out there with the view that I'm just going to take in as much of this as I can. Enjoy every moment of it. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be challenging times. But you're out there for a reason. You've paid your money. Enjoy it. Really take the time to experience it and enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, going back to kit, actually, one of the things I found worked really well was to have a pair of those um, arm coolers. Yeah. So, so we, compre- I, I got some com- compressed sport um, uh, arm covers, but they were white. Um, so one, I meant I didn't need to keep pouring sunscreen over my arms. And number two, if I was ever getting really hot, I would just tip a little bit of water over them that would, um, I mean, it didn't stay wet for very long, but still it just made a difference. That's exactly what we did. We had white arm coolers. The one, you didn't have to put the sun, you didn't have to keep buying sunscreen. And two, that the cooling effect that that gives your body mm. is, is, is really good. And it might even be hot water that you put on it. By the time you get the breeze, yeah. from the winds that then chills it and cools it and it just mm. takes your your temperature down a little bit and it just gives you that cooling effect yeah andy it's been fabulous I've, it's really brought back a few memories so i hope it has for you yeah um, it's been great talking listeners if i can't amplify what andy said enough if you wanted to do an experience like this embrace it with open arms get your entry in i c- don't think you'll have any regrets as long as you prepare properly and uh if you listen to Andy's advice about walking around with your head up, you'll, you'll have a fantastic life, life changing, really, I would think, um, experience. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You get a lot of time to kind of think. And the other thing as well is we get to switch off electronically. Yes. Because you've got, in, in, in this modern world that we live in, there's very rare times you've not got your phone in your hand or your phone in your pocket. I took my phone out to take pictures and to record videos. But there's very little or no phone signal out there. But my phone was on airline mode for the majority of the time. Mm. And it's just disconnecting from the world for six, seven days and just enjoying that experience. We had this American bloke in the tent next to us or two tents down and he had one of those Iridium sat phones. Yeah. And he came out and he was going, yeah, well, I'm I'm not going to do the American accent, but he was having a conversation with somebody about this and somebody just went, mate. Just turn it off, will you? We're all trying to get a bit of pitch. Just turn it off. And everybody started clapping. And he, oh, go for a walk out there and talk, you know, so we can't all hear you. Um, I think he thought he was being clever. But in the end, he was sort of ostracized a little bit for his behavior, which yeah. is a new, which I think meant uh, showed that everybody was appreciating that disconnectivity. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, listen, if, you, if, if there's anything we haven't covered and you've got any questions, then please send them in. Um, maybe I can get Andy back to do a little bonus podcast where we can answer your questions but for now andy slater mds veteran thank you very much for joining us thanks for your time simon you're most welcome bye for now thank you to andy for being a guest on this week's high performance human podcast as usual you can find links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below to make sure that you don't miss any episode in the future please go to itunes search for high performance human triathlon podcast and subscribe and 
while you're doing that, please, 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 could you leave us a rating and a review, whether you like the show or not. We're currently ranked at about 4.8 out of 5, so if we could nudge that up a little bit higher, I'd be really grateful to everybody who gets involved. Anyway, if you want specific guidance and structure for your training, please think about joining my SWAT community, where we have training plans for all types of endurance events, including the Marathon Disable, as well as monthly live workshops, diving deep on specific subjects, and a thriving Facebook community of like-minded individuals. You can also find a link for this in the show notes. Right, that's all for now. Have a great week, and I'll see you on the next episode.